0: let's um take our bibles let's open it to the book of exodus chapter 20 the book of exodus chapter 20 and today we're going to study the first three commandments together and i just want to say this has been extremely difficult for me um the reformed baptist inside of me wants to do this 10 commandments in a 10-week series and maybe even a 20-week series you know like because it's really so rich, it really is so deep. But I just want to give you the outline of what we're going to do. So, we're going to cover the first three t- today. Next week, we're going to dedicate one whole service or sermon to the Sabbath. Because it is a, I actually think we might be wrong in our general understanding of the Sabbath. Um, and I myself might be wrong, and I need to study this a little bit deeper. And then the Sunday after that, we will be looking at the last six um commandments about loving your neighbor so so it is a bit of a faster paced um sermon series and and I really have to adapt I really feel like it's so unnatural for me to do this I know Michael can cover like revelations in one sermon you know like that's like Heritage Baptist Joburg but yeah but um but it's a good stretch but but yeah so also bear with me in that sense you know um if you feel like it's just Rushed and things like that. I hope it doesn't feel like that. I really hope it doesn't feel to you like that. But let's let's read together Exodus twenty, and we'll just read the first seven verses together. You're now the words of the living God. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath It's a reading of God's word. Let's just humble ourselves before God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so needy for your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, please help us to fear your name. Help us to obey you. Help us to trade and to destroy all our false gods, our false idols, and love and worship and obey you and you alone father please be merciful to me lord i am an unworthy servant to take your word in my own hands and to preach it but father i entrust my soul into your care and i ask you lord to if i misrepresent you in any way that you would please be merciful to me but i pray for all of us here lord that we would truly discern with with a listening ear what the spirit of the lord wants to tell us and Help us, Lord, to understand this text and to obey you in joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, beloved, as I've said, we are um, almost close to signing our church constitution, which includes our church covenant. So the format of today, we will be looking at the commandment, the text, and then I'll look at the covenant and just comment on that as well. So it will be like a two-part session in that sense. And just remember that um, the first four commandments deal with the love your Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six deals with our love for our neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Ten Commandments is like an extended commentary of what it means to love God and love people. Like, how does that look like practically? Okay, look at the Ten Commandments. Um, And just a heads up, we will spend most of our time on the second commandment. So the first and the third one, we will go quicker. And then the middle part, we will just pause a little bit longer. But remember, the order here is very important. Remember verses one and two. Let's just read that again. So it says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So remember, we can't, that happens first. God redeemed Israel from slavery, and now they must obey God. Notice that order, right? He saves us by grace, and now we are holy and we live for Him. The order is so important. If you switch that around, you get another religion. All other religions is obey God and God will save you. Obey God and he will redeem you. Where the Bible, it's, it's the other way around. God comes to us, God saves us, he sends his son to us. He saves us by grace through faith and now we obey. That's the order. So always, always remember that order. Rest in the finished work of Christ, his, resur- his life, death, resurrection, and now devote yourself to Jesus in obedience. And let's begin, here's the first commandment, the most basic of all the commandments. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now that command might imply as if there is other gods that exist, other gods that exist, and God is just one option among many from whom we can choose, and God just says, please don't choose those gods, choose me. But that's not what this text means. Because Moses himself later writes in Deuteronomy 4.35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. There is no other God except God, right? So when God says we should have no other gods before him, it doesn't mean that there are true gods outside of him. Rather, that we shouldn't put anything, anyone, anybody, any possession, any in our lives into that position that it functions as our God. Nothing should reach that level of importance to you that it is becoming your God. So the first commandment really focuses on who we should worship. Who is our God? And the answer is, of course, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in in His essence, one in being, three in persons. So what it means to have God as our God involves at least three things. I'm just going to quickly list them. Firstly, to have God as our God, we must deliberately choose God. We must choose God. Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua says, And it is if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice Joshua says they've made, it's a deliberate choice that they are forsaking all other gods and they are serving God. They're choosing God. That's at least the first thing. And that implies that you at least have some knowledge about God. You can't choose God if you don't know who he is. So part of your choosing of him must, must involve a knowledge of him, of his attributes. God is holy. God is good. God is just. God is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He is faithful. He is our father. He is our shepherd, right? So we can go on and on and on. You must know those things and then you must dedicate and choose him. Secondly, it also involves fearing God. So choosing him, but it also involves fearing God. And we read this verse last week as well, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Now remember fear here doesn't refer to being so scared of God that you don't want to talk to Him, you run away from Him, you don't love Him. Rather, this is a, a reverential fear of awe and delight. And um, The best illustration is the fear my son has for me. He wants to run to me and I can pick him up, I can throw him up, but when I give him a command, there's a true fear there. There's a true fear of, okay, I will listen, I will obey because Daddy said and if he it, if it doesn't obey, there's discipline, there's consequences. And in the same sense, we should love God, delight in God, but we should fear to disobey him. Because he will discipline us in faithfulness. And that's not a pleasant experience when that happens to you. Yet God does it in love and in grace as well. So there's a fear, a loving trust as well. And that's actually the third part of our choosing or having God as our God. There must be a trust of God. So choosing God, fearing God, and trust. But I would say fear and trust really is like almost two sides of the same coin. It's very similar. But trusting God, Psalm 18 verse one says, David said, I love you, O Lord. Listen to how he describes God in the Psalm. My strength, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, again, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Do you hear how he's piling up Adjectives of God to show he trusts God. God is his all in all. God is our trust. God is our security. God is our joy. We turn to God when we are in trials. We turn to God when we are sorrowful. We turn to God in our joys and in our celebrations. We turn to God as our comforter, our healer, our provider. He is our everything for us. And the good news of this is only God can satisfy us. Because you were not created for false gods, you were created for God. And that's why Psalm 16, probably one of the the best Psalms in the entire Bible. Psalm 16 verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy, fullness of joy. No one has ever said, I regret that I've loved God too much. What a waste. (laughs) Rather, what do you hear? I've regretted that I've worshipped false gods. I've regretted that I've given myself to money, given myself to pleasure, given myself to this pursuit of success. Or those are the things you hear, right? People regret worshiping false gods because other gods will always disappoint you. In the same psalm, Psalm 16 verse 4, it's actually a promise. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Think about all of us have some sorrows Do you want to multiply those sorrows? You want those sorrows to increase? Easy. Run after other gods. It's a promise. You shall multiply your sorrows if you run after another god. And here we need to just identify a few idols. um, Maybe a few things that people commonly tend to put their hope in and their trust in to be their all in all. Recent, I think the one closer to my heart is people, right? We, we trust people. We put our hope in people. Even sometimes Christian leaders. And the sad reality is peoples are not gods. So if you give people enough time, and I like to say this of myself as well, if you give me enough time, I will disappoint you. Just wait. If I haven't done so already. But we tend to find our identity in people. And when people disappoint us, it is so shattering. It is so painful that we kind of give up on on a lot of other things as well. You know the middle verse of the Bible? Psalm 118 verse 8, right? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Right in the middle. But I just want to clarify here. This doesn't mean that we never seek our comfort, our Let's just use the word comfort tonight. This doesn't mean we never find comfort in people or we never trust people because otherwise none of us would be married. Because to be married involves some trust, right? None of us would be in a church because to be in a church involves some trust. So there should be some level of trust. And often God comforts us through people. This is an amazing thing. I love this. Genesis 2, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam could have said, but God, I have you. I'm not alone. And then he says, you don't understand. Here's Eve. (laughs) And then he makes marriage. And marriage solves our loneliness. Right? But yet, it's not idolatry at the same time. So, do you see, God God often provides for us through people, through means. What about Paul in 2 Corinthians? He says, God comforted us. Through the coming of Titus. So, so the question is, how do we know when a person has reached the level of an idol? How do we know if, we, if it's a good and a right thing to trust people and to be comforted by people and to even see God behind our trust? How do we even know that when someone reaches that level of an idol or our God? And actually me and a brother has been speaking about this and, I, and we've just discussed this and said, well, if you expect them to be perfect. If you expect them to be always with you, to never disappoint you, to when you feel down to be at that moment, at the right time, at the perfect moment, giving you the perfect words without fail, knowing what to say, when to say, be there for you at all times, right? We expect perfection from them. And when they're not perfect, we crush them with our disappointment. And we are bitter and angry so often, and, and think about it, that's an idol because you're expecting from people what only God can do. You see, we're expecting from people to be perfect when only God is perfect, when only God can be that. So it's not wrong to trust people, not wrong to find comfort, but don't always expect them to be everything to you. Right, we, we mess up, we, we sin against one another. And that's why the only relationships that survive, by the way, of relationships where there's forgiveness. Because it's inevitable when they, that they will be sin in some friendships, in some relationships. And if you do not forgive, that relationship dies. I, I cannot count anymore how, my, how many times Deborah had to forgive me in our marriage. And we've only been married four years. <laughs> okay, so, and, but that's the reality. But we don't look to one another to be our gods. We look to God and that frees us to forgive one another as well. So people... Don't trust, don't put your hope, your identity, your all-in-all in people. Even Christian leaders like myself, don't do that. What about money? Money is another idol. We tend to find our comfort, our identity, our jobs, our success, how much possessions we have. That tends to fill us up. And if we lose some of those things, we feel like, who am I? Again, so you see that we are wrapping our identity. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, That the rich people should never set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, not sinful to be rich, but don't set your hope on riches. Don't set your hope. Don't desire to be rich. That's actually what Jesus said. Like It's so strong that you can't serve God and money. You have to choose. There's something about desiring to be rich that demands your all. It demands your time, your dedication, and so often men probably women as well, has sacrificed their spouse on the altar of mammon or sacrificed their children on the altar of mammon to be rich. And they have the dream house, but they're alone. And we can go on about, like, success, our homes, even food. Philippians talks about their, gods are their, be- their, their, their bellies are their gods. Turning to food to comfort you can be an idol as well. Just to be clear, these are good gifts, right? These are good gifts from God, but they, 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 they start to wrap us up into idolatry. So that's the first commitment we make as a church. We shall have no other gods before him, and that is our true joy. And that's why our church covenant reads, our church covenant reads this. It says, we agree as a church to worship only the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, Who and we will declare his glory to the nations and have no other gods before him. That's a beautiful statement, right? The true God is the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God is all-powerful, all-glorious, all-satisfying, and he alone can, can save us. He is our comforter. So let's dedicate ourselves to him. That's the first commandment. Let's now read the second commandment. This one is a, is a very difficult text. One of those difficult passages we need to understand. Let's just read again verse 4 to 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in, in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first commandment focuses on who we must worship, while the second commandment focuses on how we must worship. So, what the second commandment forbids is that we are not allowed to worship God through images. So, we, we cannot worship the true God through false images. That's the, really the idea. This was a great problem for Israel. Think about the golden calf incident, right? They made this massive calf, and you know what they called the calf? Listen to Exodus 32 verse 5. It says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron said, made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. All caps. Yahweh. They called the calf the true name of God. So they had the right name, but they had the wrong way. Okay, great. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, Now we can see. All right. I hope the alarm doesn't go off. If the alarm goes off, would one of you just run? Okay, but I think the alarm won't go off. Okay, just, just check. Okay. All right, so that's the issue. We, we worship God, not by any way we choose, but by His way as well. But you might ask, what is wrong by using images if images helps us in our worship of God? So many people can testify to this. I struggled to worship God until I had something in my hands, until I had that image that I could focus on, and then, while wow, my worship just flourished or whatever. And the short answer is this, because there is simply no image that can accurately represent God. There's no image that captures who God is in his entirety. The moment we use an image to represent God, we diminish him. We make him less of what he truly is. For example, the gods of the Egyptians um, were all physical creatures or the creation itself. Think about frog. They worship a frog, the sun, a cow. Even the Nile River was, uh, was worshipped and revered as a god. And that's why the 10 plagues are so, so significant. Because the 10 plagues wasn't just a random sign of God's power. They were all dedicated to the gods of Egyptians. To say that these gods are false gods. I, am, I cannot be represented by them because I am over them. I am God over the frogs, over the Nile, over the, the, the livestock, over the sun. So we can't worship the creation, when God is over the creation, when he is ruling all of it, he has authority over it. Moreover, to have to, to use a physical image to represent God misrepresents him because God doesn't have a physical body like we do. Deuteronomy 4 verse 15 is clear. Listen to Deuteronomy four fifteen. It says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, and then he goes on to animals or the physical creation. Or John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But someone might say, but doesn't the Bible say God has eyes? Doesn't the Bible say God has ears? God has a mouth? How should we interpret those verses if he doesn't have a body? Right? Short answer again, the short way, the same way we interpret that God is a rock, or that God is like a mother bird that protects his young when we come to him and trust him. It's it's imagery to help our finite small minds to understand what he is like. So when the Bible speaks of his eyes, it refers to his knowledge, that he knows everything. He sees everything that happens. He's omnipresent. When it talks about his hands, it refers to his power, his, almighty, his that he's almighty. Nothing's too difficult for God. When it thinks about his ears, it depicts him his attention to us when we speak to him. You see, so these are the fancy word is anthropomorphism. Okay? So if you struggle, that, that's just to say using human figures to depict what God is like. But that doesn't mean God has physical body, a physical body like us. But what about those passages where God appeared in a physical form, like Jacob wrestling with with God? <laughs> In, like, was that just spiritual or what was that? Now, theologians agree that that's a pre-incarnate, the pre-incarnate Christ, right? So that's the best way to interpret that. The son of God appearing before he was born as well. So another question we must ask, but what about Jesus? Can we depict Jesus and not break the second commandment? Because he was a man like us. He, he did have a human body and he still has a human body as we speak. Would we be breaking the second commandment if we depict Jesus in our children's Bibles, for example, or things like that? Now, I just need to confess here, like I do not have that question figured out yet. (laughs) So that question for me is a very tricky one. I might be wrong on this point, but I'm inclined to say not necessarily. But I think it is possible to break the second commandment by having a picture of Jesus that's not the, the true Jesus. For example, let me just give a, a, a common example. What is? What would you say is the most common picture of Jesus you see in, I don't know, wallpapers or, right? Is it it's Jesus with the sheep around him, a child on his lap, and he's this defenseless, gentle, gracious savior? And yes, the... That is what he was like when he was on earth. There were children running to him and he was gentle. And yet that same Jesus threw over tables and made a whip to drive people out. That same Jesus will come again in Revelations and judge the living and the dead. And someone might say, but that's not my Jesus. My Jesus has the children on his lap. You see what's happened? People have exchanged the true Jesus for a picture of Jesus then it is idolatry to worship this image you have of him instead of letting the Bible shape you. Another issue we have is that it's impossible to see his deity only by looking at his human body, right? So there's another, it's a limitation as well. So we should just, so here's my conclusion. Although I won't say it's necessarily sinful to depict Jesus as a man, we just need to admit that that's not the full picture. Just admit that and just say that That cannot capture his fullness because he's God and man at the same time. Just remember that. And why should we not do this? Why should we not depict or worship God through images? Because look at the rest of the verse. He gives strong reasons. Verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God, not in the sinful way that we tend to be jealous that nasty type of a jealousy, you know. But this jealousy can be compared to that type of jealousy a husband has for his wife. That jealousy, a jealousy that seeks to protect his wife, a jealousy that seeks to don't want to share his wife with anybody else except with him. I often also use the word jealous as a word to to refer to zeal. It's It's a passionate desire for something. I would sometimes say, I am jealous to spend time with Jordan, my son. Now that I just refer there, I'm, I'm zealous to want to protect that time so that I make sure I do spend time with my son. In the same way, God is jealous of us. God is jealous over us and our worship as well. Not that He needs it because he loves us. God doesn't want to share our worship with other gods because they are not true gods and they will destroy us. He doesn't want to share his bride with other lovers. So God is jealous over us, but he's also jealous for his own glory. So he's jealous over us and he's jealous over his own glory. He will not share his glory with anybody. Isaiah 48 verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to, uh, not give to another. So God is jealous to protect us from idols and protect his name from being profaned. But what will be the result if we say we don't care, we're going to still worship God in any way we choose? Well, this is where this difficult section comes in. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, verse 5: Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Doesn't that sound a bit unfair? To visit the, the sins of the fathers? On the children to the third and the fourth generation how does that work well let me teach you a good bible study technique that we've learned in seminary right so the first question you should ask of any text is what did moses mean when he wrote it right and that's the key to understanding and the best way to know what moses meant is to study what moses wrote and later in moses's writing he makes it super clear listen to deuteronomy 24 verse 16 Deuteronomy 24:16. Moses himself now writes and says fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sins so Moses does not believe that children will be condemned for their father's sins or the father will be condemned because of their children's son right because he wrote later in the in in, in Deuteronomy that that's not the case So this text is not about condemnation. That's a key phrase to remember. This text is not about condemnation, but judgment in the sense that God allows the children to experience the consequences of their fathers and their parents' idolatry. That's what it means. God is simply letting the natural result of an idol worshiper play out through the generations and that's why he's so jealous over his name and his glory he will show how awful it is when people do not worship him by letting them suffer and more often than not the children also grow up hating God and the cycle just repeats the parents hate God their children suffer the children hate God the, 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 their children suffer and so on, and so on. And parents, I just want to say for us, this shows us how important it is to worship God. (laughs) This shows us how crucial it is for us not to have idols in our lives, because not only your children will suffer, but your children's children will suffer. It's a multi-generational thing. Sin is sometimes so deep, it will take multiple generations before it will be rooted out. So you must think bigger than just your life and your children. You must think multi-generational when you think about your life and your parenting and your marriage protect so the best parents are the ones who protect their marriage and their family from idol worship those are the best parents and we all know this to be true parents who are alcoholics their children suffer from that right Parents who neglect their children because they worship money or they worship some other God, their children feel the effects of that. And it it leaves almost a permanent mark. So we all already know this, but God is just saying that's the natural result of worshiping idols. But even in that text, there's hope because it says it's qualified by those who hate me. So God says, this is only true for those who hate me. That actually gives you hope because that means if you do not hate God, the cycle can be broken. If you repent, you might even be the first person that will repent in your family. Amazing. Praise God for that. This vicious cycle can be broken by your repentance and your trust in Jesus, your trust in him to worship him. Listen, you do not have to repeat the cycle. I find this so ironic children often despise their parents for their abuse or their neglect and then when they become parents what do they do they do exactly the same you see it's so broken but God can change you God can stop it God can give you a new heart he can give you a clean heart and even if you're the first one even if you have to figure everything out on your own that's okay Praise God that you can start over because you love God. Trust Him. Even if your children just stand on your shoulders to become better parents than you. Praise God for that. And this is what makes the next part of this verse so beautiful. Look at verse 6. The the, the next part. It says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see the contrast with verse 5? Verse Verse 5. Third and fourth generation. Verse 6, how many generations? Thousands. Like, it's like, it's like, almost like God, it's like, oh, I have to do this. But this I really delight to do. I really delight to show my love to thousand generations. It, I think for, because of this verse and other verses in the Bible, it's not wrong to say God is more inclined to show mercy than he is to show his wrath. And um, I love how Thomas Watson, Thomas Watson commenting on this passage, he says, justice is God's left hand. Mercy is his right hand. He uses his right hand most for he is most used to mercy than to justice. God is more inclined to mercy than to punishment. The Bible agrees. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no pleasure in that. So there's hope. God is full of mercy. There is more mercy in God than there is light in the sun. So you can come. Come as you are. (laughs) He's merciful. And that's why our church covenant reads on number two, we agree to worship God in his appointed way, not our way, his appointed way, only through the mediation of his son, excluding from our worship anything that he has not appointed, observing the ordinances of the new covenant, Not forsaking, but carefully and conscientiously attending all the meetings of the church, except where legitimately hindered. Practicing regular private devotions, as well as family worship, and uniting with another faithful church when we move from this place. So that last clause just says, like this church covenant doesn't mean until death do you part. You have to be with us, right? (laughs) When you move, you you unite to another faithful church. But this is what you will do. It says... We will worship God in His appointed way, which is through the mediation of Jesus, only Him. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. We worship God through the ordinances. Again, that's not our idea. God Himself instituted baptism. He instituted the Lord's Supper. So we obey God in that way. But our covenant also says we exclude from our worship anything which He has not appointed. This is actually where I think many churches just introduce very creative things that God has never appointed. But God, this is where God's word becomes primary in our worship. We don't, we're not trying to be creative. We're trying to be faithful. And that's why in our worship, what do we do? We preach the word of God. Second Timothy 4.2. We sing the word of God. Colossians 3.16. We read the word. 1 Timothy 4.13, we show the word through baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we pray the word, 1 Timothy 2.1. So the word is our whole church must be wrapped around God's word and he, how he has organized this, this, the, the, the church. And lastly, we say we commit to do all of this within the context of our families and in the context of the church. um, it says not forsaking but carefully and conscientiously um, attending all the meetings of the church except we're legitimately hindered and we will practice regular private devotions and family worship the family has actually been described as a little church your family must be a little church okay there must be a lot of singing there must be a lot of scripture reading there must be a lot of praying together Okay, we pray, and I just want to say, you don't have to be a theologian to do this. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. You just have to do it. Even if you don't know what you're reading, just read and pray and sing. Sing together, pray together, and read. That's family worship. If you have small children, no longer than 10 minutes, max. Okay? Otherwise, you'll lose them. So I just want to encourage you you don't have to be an expert at this. Just do it. Just do it, right? That meme. (laughs) Just obey. And then we worship God in this little church. (laughs) Sorry guys. (laughs) But then we worship God in his body. The greater church. Where we are. One is a finger. One is a hand. One is the eye. And we we belong together. And we do this. We preach the word. We sing the word. We read the word. we, We do this. If you are not belonging to a church you are living in sin you are rejecting god's means of worship listen to 1 corinthians 12 21 the eye cannot say to the hand i have no need of you how many people say that today about the church right i have no need of you nor again the head to the feet i have no need of you we need one another we need the church God's intention for us is to covenant together in a local body, to observe the Lord's Supper, being under good, godly, and qualified leaders, elders, and to serve the body with our various gifts. That's his intention. So let us not worship God in our own way. Let us not invent new ways. Let's be faithful to his appointed way through the Son, by the Spirit, in our families, and in our churches. That's it. That's the second commandment. So first commandment, who shall we worship? The triune God. Second commandment, how shall we worship? By his appointed means. And the third commandment now focuses on God's glory and God's name. Listen to the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when we hear that commandment, we generally think about, oh my God, and Jesus Christ in movies and films or in our conversation. And it does include that. Um, but it goes further than that. It goes much further and deeper than just using God's name as a, bla- as a, as a cuss word. So what, what the word vain means literally means light, no weight, Empty. Like vanity or vanity, says the preacher. Everything is as wind. It's nothing. It's worth nothing. And that's the idea: is using God's name as as in a way that it has no weight, no meaning, no value or glory to it. It's just one of the other all the common names that we are using in our conversation, in our speech, and in our lives. Now that can be done. You can take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain in two ways: through your words or through your deeds. That's why I say it's more than just our words. It's also the way we live. With regards to our words, it forbids us using God's name as a cuss word. But also using God's name in a light, joking manner, as if God's name just means nothing. It can be used as a joke. So here we do need wisdom. We do need wisdom. But regarding our deeds, we can also take his name in vain. Many have taken upon themselves the name of God through their baptism, through through proclaiming that they are following Christ. So they have taken upon themselves the name of God, but they live as if God does not exist. So Titus 1, again, we, we read this last week, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They deny him by their works. That's taking God's name in vain. You are just your confession of God is light, it means nothing. We should be careful about that. So in every area of our lives, we must live in such a way. That when people find out or hear that we are Christians, they should say, it makes sense. Because I've seen how you work. I've seen how you, how you strive for excellence, how you are humble, how you confess your, your, your mistakes, your sins. It makes sense. That seems to be how a Christian should live. Actually, I love Titus 2, where Paul talks to bond servants and slaves. Listen to how he commands them. He says, Bondservants, servants, okay, Titus 2 verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive. To their own masters in everything, they are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Excuse me. Adorn, make what we believe look good. <laughs> okay, so like we should, you should live in such a way that when people hear your doctrine, that they're not offended by your life. You, our lives must must make our doctrine sweet right? Our lives must be the salt and the pepper on the stake of our doctrine. Maybe one example of this. The world, for example, hates male headship, female submission in marriage. They hate that, right? But when they should look at our marriage, they must say like, you guys love each other so much. What, what, what is your secret? <laughs> well, I'm the head. She respects and submits. Oh, you believe that? Yeah, but look, at, look how peaceful we are. Look how what a joyful family. Look at our, our marriage, right? So that's what I mean by like when people see our lives, our doctrine must look good. So our church covenant says on number three, we agree not to use the name of our God lightly or to take it upon ourselves carelessly, but to adorn the triune name of God we have taken upon ourselves in baptism, And to labor with zeal for the fame of of His name and the gospel. Right? So we, we commit to make God look good because He is good. Amen? Amen. So this is three of the four commands of what it looks like to love God. Next week we will look at the Sabbath. And I just want to ask you simple questions on these commandments. What do you worship in your life? Where do you go for comfort, for refuge? Will you forsake your idols? Even today, even right now. Will you forsake those things in which you hope, in which you trust to fill you up, to make you feel significant, to give you meaning in your life? Will you forsake that? Maybe a person, maybe a job, maybe success, maybe a gift or money or whatever it might be. Will you let that go? All the while thanking God for all his gifts, right? So this is not a type of a go be a monk in the the cave thing. But will you instead come to God to be your God? Will you instead come to him? Find your identity and your joy in him. Worship him forever. Will you commit yourself to serve God in his family? In your family and in his family. (laughs) So in your family and in the church. And will you commit to not take his name in vain? Use his name with dignity, with weight, reverence. Not just in the way you speak, but in the way you live. And spreading the fame of his name, adorning the gospel of God. Because with God, life is great. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Why do you spend your money? For that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy. Lord, forever we will sing Worthy is the Lamb on the throne. Worthy is the God who created us for his own, for your own glory. Worthy are you who have redeemed us from every tongue, every tribe, every nation across the world. We will sing forever and fall down before the throne. Worthy is the Son of God who reconciled us to our Father. O Lord, our hearts were meant to worship you, to enjoy you, not just now but forever. Lord, let us gladly throw our idols in the fire. Let us gladly burn the books. Let us gladly break the things that we need to break to truly love you and love you alone. Oh, Lord, please grant us your spirit to, to obey you in this. Help us, Lord. We are weak. Lord, so often the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, Father, please be merciful to us. Help us to watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation. And May we truly, truly worship you and truly love one another. In our families, Lord, I pray for families. I pray for husbands here. I pray that husbands would love their wives passionately in such a way that the world might envy or even be longing to have that type of a marriage. And pray for wives that they would truly respect their husbands and adore their husbands. Lord, I pray for our families who have children as well. Help us as parents to be faithful, to protect our hearts from all idols, to worship you and to introduce to our children the true and the living God above all other gods. Help us not to take your name in vain. Help us, O Lord, to use your name as you truly truly are, worthy and all-glorious and all-satisfying. We give you all the glory, even for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.